Um, but uh, last week we went over Hebrews chapter 2, and we've been going through the book of Hebrews. We're going to try to get through 3 and 4. I'm going to get right into it um, this morning. I didn't feel very well and uh, felt a little bit up and down all day, but we're going to get through this tonight, amen, Lord willing. And uh, Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 is where we're going to be. And if you're not familiar with how we how we do our Wednesday night, we, we do... Uh, I lead a Bible study, and I basically just go through a book of the Bible, and I, I go through a chapter, and I go line for line in that um, in that book and in that chapter. And how many know there's some great revelation when you uh, read expositorily and and break down the Word of God, and you can find out there the uh, original content of what they were, what the writer is trying to write, and the context of why they are writing it. And so it's good for our growth. Amen. All right, so in the first two chapters of Hebrews, the writer, and of course we don't know who the writer is, and I, I, I mentioned that the first couple of weeks. Uh, the writer argues that for a season, Jesus was, he came down as a man, which and, and he's saying, hey, he came down as a man, and he was lower than the angels in order to relate for us, to be able to die for our, us. But in reality, this is the thing. This book is written to the Hebrews, okay? These are Hebrew uh, believers who have, who have uh, been transformed uh, and turned to Christ followers, but they're Hebrew in nature, and and he is he is the writer of this book is arguing that that Christ is greater than the angels, and there's um, the Hebrews uh, hold angels to a very high esteem, um, but uh, you know uh, many of the Hebrews who would hear this they may say, well that's great, you know Jesus is greater than the angels, but uh, you know, what about Moses, the lawgiver? How many know that uh, the Hebrews and the Israelites and the Jewish people, they, they hold Moses to a very high, high level. Why? Because he brought them out of bondage in Egypt, right? Um, most people uh, who have lived long enough to see a, a president or somebody lead people out of bondage and out of different situations, you hold them to high esteem, Right. And uh, so, but chapter three addresses that statement. So the Hebrews who uh, were looking to Moses, where, who got the law of God, the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, brought down. Uh, if you look at Deuteronomy, you could uh, brought down from the Lord by angels, and so that's why they esteem angels. But they, but they're like, hey, Moses, you know, he he is the prophet, and we uh, believe what he is saying. So if you need a subheading for this in chapter three, verse one, you can you can write this down. Uh, Jesus is greater than Moses. How many know that Jesus is greater than Moses? Jesus is greater than than anyone. All right, uh, but but uh, this this is just uh, talking to the Hebrews. The writer here he's gonna he's gonna give some very good information here. So it says this: Therefore, holy brothers, uh, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus uh, the apostle. Everyone say the apostle and the high priest. Everyone say high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So he's making a reference here. He's, he's bringing them together. So uh, the reason I wanted you to repeat what I said with, with the, the part that said Jesus, the apostle and the high priest is, how many know that Jesus uh, is the apostle and our high priest? I'm right. Um, apostle means this, sent out one, someone who, who goes before, right? Uh, when we hear the word apostle, most of us go back to uh, the 12 disciples, we call them, and, and the apostles of the early church, Paul the apostle. We think of those, those people, people who were sent out and, and they delivered a message, right? The message uh, of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, so apostle means sent out one, and an apostle is sent to tell others uh, uh, about Jesus. That's that's literally it. If you want a very simplistic definition, an apostle is someone who is sent out to tell others about Jesus. So when we talk about a priest, a, pre, a priest does this. 
a priest talks to God on behalf of others, okay? I'm not going to get into an argument on, on different doctrinal. Uh, dis, I'm, talking, I'm talking biblically here in the Old Testament, right? That's what the high priest would do. They would make that sacrifice. It was, it was to uh, on behalf of others, all right? So Jesus, now here's the good news, all right? You ready? Jesus is both an apostle and the high priest for us. That's it. I mean, plain and simple, uh, you know, Jesus is the original apostle. He is. I'm going to give you a little context here. The Father sent Jesus, the first apostle, uh, and, and then Jesus sent out, what, 12, his 12 disciples, right? And they were the next generation of, of apostles. And then the Holy, through the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, there were apostles sent out by the name of Timothy, Titus, and Barnabas, and the list goes on and on. And today there are those, the people that are inspired by the Holy Spirit to go out and do that. So it, it, interesting that, you know, um, if you've never thought about that, you know, some people will say, oh, Trinity is not anywhere in the Bible. But it's, I mean, it's woven in there when you see it. So, so God the Father sent Jesus, the first apostle. Jesus Christ sent his 12 disciples out. And then the Holy Spirit comes along and, and is, is inspiring people to be apostles like Timothy and, and Barnabas and so on. And so we see that in Scripture. We see that weave throughout the Scripture, okay? All right. So Jesus the apostle, so who was sent to tell us about the Father, right? Um, Jesus many times he would that was his that was his ammo hey I'm I'm here to tell you you know if you are aren't part of the vine if you aren't connected to the vine you're not connected to the father I and the father are one and he's bringing this correlation of 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 telling the good news uh, of of the gospel and who uh, God was so and then not only is Jesus the first apostle but he sits the scripture tells us this he is our high priest and he sits at the right hand side of the father and he makes intercession for you and for me that's what the scripture says and so he is praying for you that's the best prayer that you could ever get him interceding and, and on your behalf I, and so so uh moving on here the word house either means uh, here uh it either means a a a place to live or a people or a group of people okay um in second samuel 7 david prayed i want to build your house i want to build a temple to the lord right and he, he had prayed that. But God spoke to David through the prophet Nathan, and he said, hey, you, can, you can't build me a house because you are a man of war. I talked a little bit about this, I believe, Sunday. But I'm going to build a house, okay? I'm going to build a house, David, uh, a family from which the Messiah will come. David was of the tribe of what? Judah. Which tribe was Jesus from? From the tribe of Judah, okay, so so there was a lineage that was built out of him. So thus we see house used in two different lights, the building and also a group of people. So uh, here we read that Moses was was faithful in, 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 uh, to all of God's house or to the people to whom he ministered to. Moses stuck around when he didn't want to stick around with the children of Israel. A couple, couple of times he got a little frustrated with them, all right? How many know when you're leading people, you're always going to have problems? Right? If you have family members, you're always going to have, right? If you have friends, you're always going to have problems. And, and so Moses, he did what he was called to do, and he led this nation or this house, the, the children of Israel. He, he led it to the best of his ability. Matter of fact, he told the Lord he didn't want to do it at first. He said, I stutter. I, I'm not good with language. And God's like, so what? I'll be with you. Go. And, and, and he had this argument with, with him back and forth, and he finally went. So look at this. Verse 3 says this, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Amen. And as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. All right? I like this. Verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So there's a lot 
uh, uh, to unpack here. So God is the builder of all things. How many believe that? Right? Colossians says, from him all things were created, right? In him. And so all things. So the author of Hebrews equates Jesus to God. He's putting uh, Jesus uh, up over Moses, and he's saying, hey, he is, uh, he is God. Thus, Jesus certainly is more worthy of glory than Moses. It's what, it's what he's telling the Hebrews here. So he's helping them to understand that. So the implication in verses 3 and 4 is that the covenant that Jesus established is more glorious and, and better for us than the, than the covenant that was established at Mount Sinai. You ought to be excited about that. Let me tell you why. Because we're Gentiles, and that covenant allows us to come into to covenant with the Lord, and so so we you should be like I'm so glad Jesus came because He made a way for you and me to enter in. This this is a beautiful picture. Verse five compares Moses and Jesus, and it, and it says this: Yes, Moses was faithful to God's house. He was great. He's a good man, and but he had his he had his issues, right? Uh, and he was a great leader of the house of God or the Israelites. He was a good servant. But Jesus not, is not only faithful to God's house or people, but was faithful over God's house. I'm not just faithful to it. I am over it. I, I, am, I am sovereign to that. He's not just a servant to God's house or, or God's people, but he's sovereign over it. And how many know that he is all-powerful and all-glorious? Amen? And we are his house. Everyone say, I'm his house. What does the Lord choose to dwell in? Us. And I don't know about you. I don't know why. You know, because I don't feel like that I'm worthy. I don't feel like that I'm worthy uh, to be a place that God would even want to dwell. How many feel like that sometimes? First Corinthians six nineteen through 20 says, uh, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have uh, of God, and you are not your own. I mean, I'm glad for that. For ye are, are bought with a price. Amen? Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God. So, hey, he dwells in us. First John 4, 12 says this, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God, he what? Abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Beautiful. How many are glad that God dwells in you? I am. I am. I don't know why he does, but I'm glad he does. Uh, uh, you know, some of you say, well, I don't feel like I'm, I'm extravagant, you know, and I'm not as good as Solomon's temple, you know. Uh, I can't remember the figure off the top of my head, but uh, someone calculated what it would cost to build Solomon's temple in, in, in modern times, and it was in the trillions of dollars. I don't know about you, but when I compare myself to what Solomon built, and, and God would dwell there in the Old Testament, and I compare myself to that, I feel like a tool shed. Right? How many of you feel like a lean-to almost? God, I'm not worthy <laughs> for you to be dwelling here right now. And, and, uh, but listen, if you feel that way, don't feel bad about that. Uh, no worries. God's love is being perfected in you. He's dwelling in you, and he's chipping away at you, and he's saying, oh, I need to put some stuff up over here. We're gonna, I'm going to expand this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help develop you. How many know that God is still working on us? How many are glad that God's still working on us? None of us have arrived or will arrive until we get to heaven. And so in the meantime, I'm like, God, just keep working on me. Break me down if you need to. But, you know, Lord, if there's a wall in my life that needs to be broken down and you want to you wanna do something different within me, do it. Have your will and have your way in my life. I, I love that. Look at this. If indeed we, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So chapter 2 talked about uh, drifting. I talked about that last week, drifting from the truth. And here's the thing, we, we have to keep a hold and keep our eyes focused and our hearts focused on the truth, which is Jesus Christ. Truth is not relative. Truth is not relative. What do you mean, Pastor? Truth is not relative. And you may say, I don't believe in gravity, but I say this all the time. 
climb up on that balcony and jump down. Don't do that. I'm, don't do it. But you know what will happen. You may say, hey, gravity doesn't work for me. Yes, it does. Truth is not how you feel. Truth is the truth, whether you like it or don't like it, whether it agrees with you or not agree with it. How many know that this generation and this world needs to hear that today? Amen? The devil is a liar. Come on, somebody. And, and so, uh, uh, so we have to keep our eyes on Jesus, the truth. And so if we are his house, we are to hold on to this confidence and this hope of the gospel. Jesus Christ is dwelling in me. I, I hang on. I'm, I'm holding on. I'm, you know, there's a lot of turbulence around us. There's a lot of situations, but I'm holding on to the truth. And a lot of people want to equate Jesus Christ to love, but Jesus came in truth and love. Those things are coupled together. They're coupled together. Jesus uh, and the woman at the well is a prime example of that. Jesus, he was very compassionate with her. He was very loving to her, but he told her the truth. Where's your husband? And what, what did she say? I, I don't know. Yeah, well, what about the other ones and this? And so he read it. The truth is there. So, so we have to understand, that, you know, John fourteen six. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, right? Oh, come on. Just keep on going, Pastor. You're doing real good. I'm getting myself excited up here, all right? But if we re- here's the deal. This is what we have to understand. If we return to traditionalism, if we turn to, return to rules, and this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Listen, you guys know Christ, and you guys are trying to go back to the old way. You're trying to. You're hearing the the, the swishing of robes in the temple. You're hearing the, the 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 trumpets in the temple call, and and your mind is saying. Well, maybe we need to be doing this while we believe this. And he's saying, don't do it. Listen, it's not of our efforts. Ephesians 2.8 says we are saved by grace. It's not of our own works. Nothing that we can do. Right? So he's saying, listen, don't go back to, to trying to do it in your own efforts. So here's the second subheading. This is going to cover a large portion of this. is going to go over into chapter 4. Arrest for the people of God. How many need arrest? Come on, you can raise your hand. Some of you are too tired to raise your hand. I can't even raise my hand, Pastor. I need to rest that bad, right? Uh, arrest. Look at this. Verse 7 says this, therefore, and, and what, it, what happens when you see the word therefore in Scripture? What is it therefore? <laughs> this is telling us, hey, uh, I'm telling you, Jesus is better than Moses. So therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Verse 9. Were your fathers, uh, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Verse 10. Therefore I was provoked uh, with that generation and said, they always go astray in their what? Heart. They have, they have not known my ways. Verse 11. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So he's, he's, the writer here is quoting uh, Psalm 95, 7 through 11. And the writer alludes to, to or, or points out to us the account of the Israelites or, and, you know, uh, in, from Numbers uh, 13. So what happened here as the spies, you, many of you know this story, and this is going to be very important because these are going to just, go together right here this is spies they were going in into the promised land right they were they sent 12 over one from every tribe of israel there were 10 spies who went over right they were and they had they had they came back with a negative report how many know that there are a lot of negative nannies out there right they came back with a negative report, and two came back with a good report right and who's the two that came back with a good report caleb and joshua right those two young men, they came back, and so the ten said, hey, man, uh, there are, there's some good things over there, but there are giants over there. No way, Jose, should we go over there. And they begin to murmur, and they begin to complain. Joshua and Caleb came back, and they said, listen, there are giants over there, but there are grapes, giant grapes, and we can take this land, right? And it's, it's interesting to me when I think about that story in general do you, okay, think about this. So we know that the two spies who came back with the good report are Caleb and Joshua. Can you name any of the other ten? No. They're not mentioned in the Bible. Well, you know why? Because they, they lacked faith. They didn't have confidence in God. Let me ask you that tonight. Where is your confidence? 
When it looks like an impossible situation, but God has promised you something, do you have the faith, the intestinal fortitude to trust in the Lord, right? What does that mean? The guts to trust in the Lord, right? So, so we, he's talking about this. And so uh, only Caleb and Joshua ha- had, had the, the guts or the faith to trust in God and say that they could take the land. Matter of fact, if you read that carefully, it says the ten begin to murmur and they begin to go around to other people and say, hey, we shouldn't do this, we shouldn't do this. How many know that negative things go around a lot faster than positive things? Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Come on now. I'm going to bring it down real practical tonight, right? Oh, be careful, little. If it's negative, don't, don't. Hey, psh, I don't need to hear that. I don't, I don't need to know that. Uh, but, you know, and the ten said, oh, man, we, we are toast. These, the, these, and it was their lack, uh, 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 their unbelief or their lack of trust in God that would prove detrimental and deadly to a whole generation of people. A whole generation of people died is the longest death march ever. 40 more years they, they journeyed and God said, hey, no one under, under the age of 20 is going to see that other than Caleb and Joshua, including Moses. You know, Moses didn't see it either. So, uh, so, so we know that. So it, it, it makes me stop and wonder. Here's the thing. It, and when I think of that kind of story, it makes me stop and wonder if my unbelief has forfeited miracles, has forfeited promises, uh, just because I... I I lack the faith to believe in what God was trying to do. You ever been there? I, I've been there. I'm being honest. I'm being real tonight. I say even now, you know, at this moment, I begin to think about those things. And I say, God, I repent. Forgive me. Lord, forgive me in those moments where you were trying to show me something, where you were trying to show me a promise, where you were trying to show me how faithful and how strong you were, that my unbelief kept me from touching and seeing your promise fulfilled in my life. Look at this. Verse 12 says this. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you uh, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it, uh, it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What does sin do? It makes our heart hard, Right? We, we, I mean, here's the thing. You can, you can enjoy sin for seasons, what the Scripture tells us, but there's a time where your heart becomes hard. But you know I, what I love about God? You know, Ezekiel tells us that God can take the stony heart and make it soft again. God can turn uh, something that is, that is hard and, 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 and lighten it. So verse 14 says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, As it is said, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For uh, for who there those who heard and yet rebelled. So the writer warns them and not to make the same mistake that their ancestors made there at Kadesh Barnea. That's That's what he's telling them. Say, hey, your ancestors, they dropped the ball. How many know that sometimes learning from people who make mistakes is better than you making that same mistake? How many when you were younger, you had to make those mistakes by yourself because you, did, you were too stubborn and too prideful to listen to an older generation who said, don't make those mistakes. And you said, oh, I can do this. It's this, different. It's me. It's not you. And then you made the same mistake, Right. Oh, I think it's smart. And so the writer here is saying, hey, your ancestors, listen, don't make that same mistake of unbelief in your heart. Trust in, in God. And, and, and here's what happened to the children of Israel. They looked at their inadequacy rather than God's inerrancy. That's what happened. It's like, hey, we are not capable of doing this instead of saying, God, you are capable and we're just going to follow you. Right? So, so what does that mean? They were focused on the problem rather than trusting on God. Have you ever done that? Guilty. Right here. Man, I got this. This is struggling. I'm not blah, 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 blah. And God's like, I'm up here. I can help you right on through this if you'll just trust me, right? Here's the thing. They were concerned about giants in the promised land rather than God's provision. That's it. They were more concerned about what they saw than what God had promised and what they knew. 
unbelief is a, is a grave sin because it leads us away from God. It, it is the stubborn refusal to the truth and the truthfulness of his word is what you're saying is, God, I know better than you do. That's what unbelief is. I, I don't believe you. I, I trust myself. I don't trust you. The writer calls them brothers and brethren, which in the King James Version, meaning that, that they were believers. He's, he's telling them, hey, brothers, sisters, brethren, hey, you are a believer. But he's warning them to stick to the truth and to not let unbelief cause drift in their spiritual walk. That's what he's saying. So God allowed, it's interesting because God allowed a whole generation of Israelites to die because of their unbelief. Unbelief in God is a grave mistake, right, that we can make. And I say this, Lord, help us. Lord, I need help with this. From day to day, different situations, different circumstances, God, give me strength to trust in you. Give me strength to trust in you. Uh, um, So the writer, he later mentioned mentioned this to them, not to forsake the assembling of, of, of the saints together, urging each other to to come together in love and faith and good works. Why do we do that? So we can encourage each other. Why do we have Sunday service? Why do we have Wednesday service? So we can come together and we can encourage each other. We can love on each other. We can say, hey, I went through this this week. This is what God did for me this week. And we can build each other's faith up. Amen? So it says this. Was was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? So, um, So how were the children of Israel delivered from Egypt? Two things, by the blood and by water, right? By God initially, but by the blood and the water. So what was the last plague? Uh, the death angel, and, and they put the blood on the doorpost, right? We know that. They, they covered it, the, and if there was blood on the, door, uh, uh, blood on the doorpost, the, the death angel would go by, and he would overlook them, right? And then he would go to the next house, and every firstborn uh, uh, son would die, and that's how the grip uh, uh, Pharaoh finally was was loosened, right? He said, go, and he sent them on his way, and then he did what he always does. Hey, I'm coming after them. And then what happened? They got to the Red Sea, and God did the, this miraculous miracle, and, and, the, and the Red Sea opened up, and they crossed the Red Sea, amen? And they went across on what? Dry land? And they got to the other side, and, and, and here comes Pharaoh and his army, and God, God takes care of them. How many know that God is a great deliverer? You know, let me tell you what that is. That, that is a picture for us. When we talk about Egypt in the scripture, just, just as a good reference for you, if you, this will help you in your Bible study. When we talk about Egypt, it, it's always a picture of sin. It, it, I mean, that's, that's just the way it is. It's always a picture of sin. Sin had us bound. And by the blood of Jesus on the cross, Bible says this, that by his, by his blood, you know, in, in, in Isaiah it talks about his blood. We've been redeemed by his blood on the cross. They, they, they stabbed him with a spear, and what? Water and blood began to flow from him. By the water, by the blood of Jesus, and the water that flowed from him, we have been set free from condemnation of sin because of Jesus Christ. Amen? Man, that, that is a beautiful thing. But here's what happens with us. By the blood and the water that flowed from Jesus on Calvary. But this is what happens to us. Unfortunately, like the Israelites, so many Christians spend their lifetime wondering... We've been pulled out of Egypt, but we wander in the wilderness. Come on, what's the next step? Uh, and we spend a lifetime wandering between Egypt and the promised land or, uh, 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 or the land of abundance. Year after year, we think, well, this is as good as it gets. This is all it's going to be until I die. Anybody ever said that? <sighs> this is as good as it's going to be until I die. You know, I can't, I, it's not going to get any better than that. But you know what? That's not what God wanted for us. His plan was to take us out of Egypt through the wilderness quickly into the promised land. And, and, and the promised land here uh, is, is the spirit-filled, abundant life. Okay, this is really, this is, I mean, I'm just walking you through. I know this is very simplistic, but this is, this is so true. The promised land in, in Bible typology is this. It is, I mean, you know, you can, you can look at it as a picture of heaven, but, but it, it is a picture of the spirit-filled life. How do I know that? Well, I know this. There are neither giants nor battles in heaven. But I do know this. In this life, 
When I'm going to the promised land that God has called me to, I'm going to face some giants. I'm going to face some battles. I'm going to face some situations. And what he's saying here is, hey, once you've been saved and you've been through the wilderness, be led by the Spirit of God in the next part of your life. And listen, you will overcome. He will draw, He will bring you through it. So the Spirit-filled life is, is, is you know, Filled with sometimes, man, you, you just fight things and there are battles and, and wars to wage. And, I, and, I, and going back to this, only Joshua and Caleb, only Joshua and Caleb realized that giants and the battles and the, and the wars notwithstanding, that God would indeed give them the promised land. Only those two guys, they, they believe that God has got my back. Oh, to have the faith of Caleb and Joshua. We talk about it a lot. We say, oh, man, I, I want to have that kind of faith. But, man, sometimes I can't help but think that unbelief creeps in and we're like the ten instead of the two. Well, and here's what the scripture says is that, that Joshua and Caleb, they didn't provoke God. God said, ah, these guys trust me. And guess what? They saw the promised land. They saw the promised land. Verse 17 says this, and with whom... Uh, was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to, at verse 18, and to him did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient. Verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of what? Unbelief will keep you out of a lot of things. I don't know about that, God. I don't know how I feel about that. God's like, trust me, trust me. Trust me. The sin of Hebrews 3, listen to me. The sin of Hebrews 3 is not fornication. As, even as destructive as that sin is, uh, the sin of, of Hebrews 3 is not idolatry, even as sad as that sin is. Rather, it is simply this, not believing how good God is. Let me help you out in your walk with God. Trust him. I don't always know the details. I don't always understand. But God, I trust you. You've been good. I know I can trust you. What if you're sick in your body? Trust him. What if things are falling apart on your job? Trust him. What if things are falling apart in your relationship? Trust him. It's really simple. It's a really simple lesson that we can all benefit from. But look at this. Blessing and anointing, ministry, fruitfulness, and victory are not about you. Did you know that? They're not about you. The battle, I mean, those things are not about you. It's not about the work you do for the Lord. It's not about the, it is about the work that he did for you, right? It's not about your prayer to the Lord. It's about his intercession for you. Come on, somebody. Uh, It's not about your faith in the Lord. It's about him being faithful uh, to the Father. Amen. It's not about him being, uh, it it is all about him being the hero, the prayer warrior, the victor, the friend, and the faithful one. Amen. So the key to to a successful ministry and in er any area of your life can be found in John chapter 10. All right, you ready for this? Yeah, if you're a note taker, you can write this down. How many want? How many want to know uh, what the key to having a successful ministry in life is? Right here, you can write this down. Jesus said this of John the Baptist. You ready? In John chapter ten, he said, "This is the greatest man who ever lived." What? That's, that's that's literally what he said. Yet Scripture also records that John the Baptist didn't do one miracle. Well, how is he the greatest man that ever lived? Why would Jesus put him up on a pedestal, right? But he didn't do anything, you know. It, even Peter got to walk on water, so he, you know, even his shadow healed some. You know, so, so why John the Baptist? Why are you elevating him? You know, why, why is there no one greater in all of Israel? Why him? So what made John the greatest? One thing. He didn't preach on the power of prayer. He didn't propagate victory through discipline. This is what he did. His whole ministry was this. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Listen, I'm not worthy. That guy right there, I can't even hold his sandals. He pointed people to Jesus simply. 
not disciplined on prayer life, not on this. Just follow Jesus. Follow. Don't look at me. Go right past me. Go to, go to, and he is crying out in the wilderness, right? And he, he is the forerunner to Jesus. Happy is the person that understands that God's grace is at work, not in their good works, right? But that God would choose to, wor- to love a worm like you and like me. So I don't like being called a worm. That's what I deserve, and that's what I am. But God chose to love me. I, that's a beautiful thing. Don't let anyone tell you uh, the reason I'm successful is because I pray all night and I pray all day, right? You ever been around somebody like that? I pray more than you, so I'm more spiritual than you, right? That's so pious. That's not the love of God. Right, I'm better than you because I pray. I'm better than you because I read my Bible. I I read my seven chapters in the morning, my seven chapters at lunch. Listen, those are great things. I'm not I'm not demeaning those things, but listen, contrary to what any anyone would ever tell you, those things. And I think you need to do those things, but those things don't put me any closer. I mean, they they will draw you to God, but listen, they don't save me. It's not by works. It's not anything that I do. It's, it's because of him. It's, it's, it's Jesus Christ. I, I want to be like John the Baptist and say, look, look this way. Look at him. He has a better way. It's a beautiful thing. Contrary to many sermons and, and the deceitfulness of sin, uh, you know, those are one thing. But it's saying I, I've got to do more. I, I've got to be bigger. I've got to be stronger, right? Some of us say, I've got to be stronger for this spiritual walk. I got to be, but here's the thing. That's not the truth. God has given you the promise, and there are giants there. Hey, some of us say, I got to be stronger before I can go into the promised land. God says, oh, no, you don't, because I've given you Jesus Christ. You can do great things because Jesus is with you. Amen? And listen, that's the very sin that kept the Israelites out out of their promise. It was unbelief. And it's about, it's about God's work for you. And not your work for him. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Be blown away by him. And behold the Lamb. Chapter 4. Look at this. Verse 1 says this. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. We're still talking about rest. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So what, uh, what should we be afraid of? In this life, what should we be scared of? Simply is this. Simply is limiting the, uh, the Holy One of Israel or God, saying, God, you, you, can't, you can't do this. My situation's bigger than you. That, that is limiting God, right? That's, that's it. How many believe the, the Scripture, you know, uh, all things are possible, right? It's what, it's what, it's, we know that in Scripture, all things are possible through Jesus. So look at this, Psalm 74, 1 says this, They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. So remember, Israel's unbelief led them to just accept that God could not be with them and led them uh, to the promised land uh, and, and did not lead them to the promised land like they had hoped. It did, but they weren't ready to go in, right? So um, here's the thing. The author here simply says, don't be afraid of the giants or your situations, but rather rather fear or be afraid of the one who doesn't believe, uh, uh, you know, or does not believe in God or the person that that you would have unbelief in your heart is what I'm trying to say. Verse 2, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they had heard did not benefit them. Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. You know what that verse tells me? You can hear a lot of sermons. You can hear a lot of things and still have unbelief in your heart. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit. That what it means it didn't because they were not united by faith in those who listened. So good news here is the gospel, right? We talk about that. Good news. Uh, for the Israelites in the wilderness was a land that waited for them with milk and honey. When I was little, uh, you know, pastors used to talk about that. I always thought it was milk and cookies. How many know I believe that we're going to a land of milk and cookies, amen? And there's going to be no calories in those milk and cookies. Some good old chocolate chip cookies. You know, you knew I'd get to food somewhere in this, right? I always do somehow, some way. But milk and honey, yes. Uh, but here's the thing. There were obstacles, but God promised them victory if they simply believed. 
Simple, right? Oh, but they said, oh, we're grasshoppers. And, and, and grasshoppers mentally will, when we have a grasshopper mentality, what happens is we will we'll paralyze us spiritually today if we're not careful. <sighs> I'm just a grasshopper, Lord. I'm not, there's no way I can do this because I'm, I'm looking at my own ability versus God's ability through me. Amen? And in me. Remember, it's, it, it, it's, it's the, not their shortcoming that kept them from the promised land. And, and, and they had many, but it was simply the simple thing of unbelief. You're going to hear me say that over and over and over and over and over. Why do you keep saying that, Pastor? So you will get it. Right? And they failed to mix. Listen, I, I like this. I like this thought. They failed to mix God's promises with faith. You know what happens when you mix God's promises with faith? Amazing things. Amazing things. So God's promises, when they're mixed with faith, so how many times does our lack of faith, has it kept us from God's promises, from God's blessings in our family or our needs in our situation? So when you mix, when you mix the gospel with faith, you see amazing miracles. Well, what do you mean, Pastor? Well, I'm glad you asked. Acts chapter 12 says this. Says that Peter was thrown into prison. Herod had him thrown into prison, right? He was tired of all these, this Christianity thing going around. Peter's preaching and people are being saved and people are being added under the church. And Herod wants to get a grip on this. He's like, How do I get a grip on this? I'm going to throw Peter in jail. And he's thrown in jail. And, and, and you know, it, it's amazing. All the the churches, they begin to pray for him. Come on, how many know that prayer works? They start praying for him. And, and while he's in jail, Peter's in jail, and, and the angel of the Lord shows up to him and says, hey, uh, get up. And all his, all his uh, chains and shackles come off of him, and the doors of the jail open up. He said, oh, come on, follow me. And then the doors of the outer jail open up, and he's just following this angel. How many know that that would be amazing? Right? And, and, and then so, and the Bible th- even says this, that there was, Peter thought maybe it was just a vision. And then he gets out into the town and then he starts, the angels walking him through town. He's like, this is not just a vision. These are like people out here. This is, I know this, this is, this is happening. This is amazing. But imagine this, imagine if Peter would have said, nah, I see you angel. I'm never going to stand up. Nah, I'm not going to step out. You know why? I know better than what God does. I know what's best for me, and it's better that I stay here in jail. What, what if his faith never moved? What, you know, and he would have been stuck there, but no, 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 no. His faith mixed with the promise of God, and God did the miraculous. The angel said, hey, get up. Step out. Go for it. And here's what I'll tell you. In your situation, in your life, you may feel like you're in a prison. Get up. Step out. Go for it. And you'll discover that reality that God can do amazing things. If you allow it. The word mixed with faith means we stand up and we start moving. You know, I love this story because Peter, he shows up at that house and he knocks on the door. Knock, knock. Right? They open the door. Who's there? It's the first knock, knock joke, right? Peter. Peter who? Peter the apostle. Right? And they were really dumbfounded and didn't even realize it was Peter. They were just blown away. And the, the guy that they had been praying for was automatically right there in front. How many know that that is a miracle? But listen, if Peter would have let unbelief and said, man, if I leave this jail, I might get killed. I might allow all these different circumstances. I, I can't control this. I can't control this. But he said, no, 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 I'm going to step up. I'm going to step in faith, and I'm going to trust the God that I know will do the miracles. When your faith mixes with the word of God, the promise of God, listen, when those things come together, how many know that miracles transpire? Amen? All right, for the four of you that are with me, that's all I need. Verse 3 says this. For we who have, who have believed enter that rest. So, um, so the Hebrews and the Jews would argue here, hey, hey, we, we have rest. We've been given a day of rest. We've been ordered a day of rest, right? How many know uh, the Sabbath day, right? What, what is that? We're supposed to rest. So, um, um, but let's read on here. This is what it says. As he said, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works 
were finished from the foundation of the world. Verse 4 says, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in a way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works, right? How many know that's scriptural? How many know that's what God wants us to do, to take a Sabbath, all right? And and again, in this passage, he said, They shall not enter uh, my rest. Verse 6, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of what? Disobedience, unbelief. So although th- there was a Sabbath day established in the creation week, right, uh, which is still valid. Listen, you, you, ought to, you ought to follow that. That's in the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, but here, a thousand years later, God says, therefore it remains for us, for some to enter it, as, as if to say, hey, this is a future event that I'm talking about, this day of rest. It's not the day of rest that we take once a week. No, this is a bigger than that, that event. So, therefore, this is, this is not speaking of creation Sabbath day or, or even a Canaan land to a promised land. Uh, but this is talking about a new heaven and a new earth. There's a day coming. Listen, there's a day coming where all the toils of this earth are going to be behind us and we'll have perfect rest. Amen? Do you believe that? Come on, say, do you, I, all right? If you're with me, say, I'm with you, pastor. All right, verse 7 says this. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterward, in, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I, I love this. I love how he's coming around to that. Don't harden your hearts. Don't let unbelief come in. Don't disobey what the Lord's saying. He's, he's saying this. For if Joshua, the Greek form of Joshua in, in the New Testament, some of you may have a, a King James Version, and it probably says Jesus, right? Uh, and it says it's Jesus or Yeshua or Joshua. The, the, the King James Version, definitely it says Jesus instead of Joshua, but newer translations actually say Joshua, which is the, the, a better rendering of this because it's talking about Joshua and the children of Israel. But listen, it, it, it's talking about Joshua leading the children of Israel into the promised land. And, and, and the physical promised land, okay? But, but it says this, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So although Joshua led the children of Israel into the promised land that God had promised for them, there is a day of rest coming, a promise of real rest, a promise of God-given rest, okay? What does that mean? It's not the, the promised land rest. It's not the Sabbath day rest. It's not the creation rest. It's not, not any of that. But, well, what is it then? It's the rest in Christ. What do you mean? To rest in Christ. Do you know what that means? We struggle with that. We struggle with resting in Christ, understanding that God's got us. Why? Because we feel like we've got to get our fingers to work. We've got to get do all these things. Look at this. Verse 10 tells us, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So this verse can be seen in two ways, all right? Two ways. I want you to look at this. You get rest when you stop trying to give when you when you stop trying to give up on earning your salvation. You're not saved by how much you pray. You're not saved by how much you read your Bible. You're not saved by how much you evangelize. You're not saved by those things. You're saved by the grace of God. And it's something that all we have to do is just rest and trust in the Lord. Can't earn your way to heaven. Your works will not get you there. So true rest starts when you realize salvation has nothing to do with you. Come on now. Or what you do, but it's dependent upon who Jesus is, and that's it. Jesus did it. I don't have to toil, and I don't have to worry about it. God, I trust you. Lord, I believe in you. Secondly, here's the second thing. It points to this. That day of rest points to future believers. We, uh, we struggle with life, and we're saved from Egypt or sin, but there is this promised land that's coming one day. Come on, where there will be no more toiling. No more crying and no more pain. Revelation fourteen thirteen says this rest may refer uh, to the rest of believers who will enter in when they finish their work for God, God's kingdom here on earth. 
going to rest. God, I've toiled here on this earth. I've preached. I've ministered. I've followed you to the best of my ability. And we get to heaven and God's like, rest. Some of you are like, man, I wish I was there right now. Verse 11 says this, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Strive or labor into rest. What does that mean? It means this, just to rest in God and relate to him. You know, here's the thing. When we first come to know Christ, you know, resting in the Lord can feel awkward to us. We, we you know, we don't always understand that. How many uh, know how to ride a bike in the house? How many don't know how to ride a bike in the house? It's all right if you don't know how to ride a bike. No one, all right. So most everybody knows how to. Here's the thing. When you first started riding your bike, you wobbled, right? You you had trouble with your hand, eye, feet coordination because you got multiple things going on. You're trying to steer, pedal, and balance all at once, right? How many fell a few times? How many have skinned your knee on, on your bike? How many got over, a little overconfident, went down a hill and, and, and hurt yourself? I did that a few times in my life. And, and, and that's what happens when we, when we start to ride a bike. But, 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 but here's what happens. After you've ridden a bike for a little bit, you get on it. And then you're, as you get a little bit older, you start riding a bike to relax on, right? I don't toil with it anymore. It's not, I mean, maybe if you get older, you might toil getting on it. But once you get going, right, come on, somebody, you know what I'm talking about. But once you get on it and you get going, you might toil because you're tired and out of shape. But, but, but once you get on it, it can be relaxing, right? I, the other day, we were at Star Hollow fishing, and, um, man, there was kids on bikes run, going down the parking lot, and, and they were running around, and they were not toiling, and they were not struggling, and they were going as fast as they could, Right? It's the same thing for us, and, and when we begin to rest in the Lord, at first it may feel wobbly. It may feel like, I can't do these things all at once. I, I'm, I'm struggling with this. But once we learn to really, truly trust in God, guess what? We can just get in there and just get in cruise control and say, hey, Lord, you've got me. No matter what happens in my life, you've got me. So that no one may, may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall and the same sort of disobedience. So if we, if we do not enter into his rest like the children of Israel, we will wander year after year in the wilderness of dryness and drought. No blessing because we're trying to work out our own salvation and our own energy. Never at peace. Just because we choose not to believe. We say, hey, you know, and, and here's the thing. God is good. How many say that God is good? How many say God's promises for me are good? And, and, and you're probably like me. I remember when I was young, I remember I got the mail from my mom, and it was Publisher's Clearinghouse. And I'm like, Mom. And I came in. I was like, you won a million dollars. And I was like, and I was like, you should open this. And she's like, honey, that is just trash. And I was like, no, Mom, this is our chance. It says it right here. And I was so excited. My mom said, babe, that is, that's too good to be true. And if it's too good to be true, it probably is. And a lot of things in life are like that. Amen. But here's the thing. If God says it, it's not too good to be true. He will back it. Verse 12. For the word of God is living. Amen. And active and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the, the division of the soul and the spirit uh, uh, of joints and of marrow and, and discerning thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the word of God, uh, you know, here's the thing. The word of God is the measuring stick Christ will use on judgment day. This is, this is it. This is our guide. This is our manual. This is what we're supposed B-I-B-L-E, basic instruction before leaving this earth, right? This is what we are to abide and live our life by. So God's message is... His word is alive and active. How many know that when you read the word of God, it will read you? It's what happens. You begin to read it, and it starts to read you, and it begins to penetrate the innermost parts of a person. Why why is this scripture bothering me? Why, Why is this convicting my heart? Because it's getting down where it needs to get. Amen? And it distinguishes what is natural and what is spiritual as well as thoughts and our reflections and our intents and our insights as a person. The Word of God exposes the natural and the spiritual motivation as believer, in a believer's heart. 
sometimes that's not easy, is it? When the word of God begins to expose things in you. Hey, you need to get this out of your life. Oh, Lord, you didn't have to say that. Why? Why did you have to put that in your word? Because I I really don't want to deal with that right now. And the word of God begins to expose those things and show us. But look at the context of this verse. The word pierces the heart. And and as it recounts the stories of the people of Israel. and, and, And it got to the intent of their heart. You know what the intent of the people of Israel's heart was? Unbelief. And the word of God will expose those things in us. Amen? Look at this, verse 13. And no creature uh, uh, creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So not only does God God's word pierce our heart, but he, his eyes pierce us as well. What does that mean? The Lord sees our inadequacies. He sees our un- unbelief. Look at the next verse. And here's a new subheading right here. Jesus the high priest. I, I mentioned that, okay? Well, we're almost done, I promise. Um, but it says this, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hey, I believed in him. I'm holding fast to that. For we do not, uh, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been temp- uh, tempted, and we, uh, we are yet without sin. So my tendency is to focus my inadequacies and my doubt and fear but here's the good news. I have a high priest who understands me. He knows me. You know, uh, Scripture tells us, our text says that he sympathized and, and was tempted. Sympathy, sympathize means this, to suffer with and, to, uh, and, and express the feeling of one who has entered into sufferings. To know what you're going through. Hey, have you ever been through something and then been around somebody and, been, and they've been like, I'm struggling with this. You'd be like, hey, I dealt with that. And you, you begin to sympathize with him. I know what it feels like. I know what it's like to lose your job. I know what it's like to have this experience. I know, hey, how many know sometimes you need somebody to sympathize with you? Sometimes you're just looking for somebody to just, just, just whine with me a little bit so I can understand where you're coming from, right? Sympathize with this. Here's the second thing that, that he knows because he, he came and he, it was in the flesh. Temptation. Though Jesus came, he never fell to temptation, but he understood temptation. This tells us that Jesus, he, he dealt with every degree of temptation. Well, while he was a man, he, he understands the temptations that you uh, struggle with. He, he knows. He sympathizes. I understand. I, I, I know what you're going. And I'm, I'm a high priest up here, and I'm interceding for you because I want you to do well. I suggest to you for Jesus to be uh, uh, the compassionate, faithful high priest. The book of Hebrews tells us he is the the temptations he endured had to be genuine temptations for him. Sometimes we think, oh, well, he was the son of God. It was easy for him. Three times, three times the devil tempted him. You know, there's no, no greater time to tempt someone than when they're fasting, right? Seems like when you're, going, you're fasting for the Lord, the enemy comes in and starts fighting left and right. Hey, I'm not even going to fast you, but I'm going to fast you with food, right? <laughs> Man, I don't know if I could hold up to that temptation or not. You know, Pastor, I'm just being real right now. That's just me. But, but for him to be touched with the feeling of, of, of our infirmities and to understand that we're, what we're going through, he had to have been where, where you have been. Not, he didn't sin. Don't get me wrong. He didn't sin, but he understands, right? That's why we sing that old song, No, Not One. But Jesus knows all about our troubles. You know how he knows? Because he came and he lived this life and he understands the temptations and the things that we go through. So even though the word pierces me and when I see stories of unbelief and realize that the same kind of unbelief resides in me, I, when I look at the children of Israel and I look at their unbelief and I, it's easy for me to go, huh, they had unbelief. But sometimes in my own life, I have unbelief. God, you couldn't do that. God's saying, I want to give you the promised land. I want to do something great. And I'm, unbelief creeps in in my heart. So what does that make me do when I've had a struggle? Look at this, read on. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. How many know that that right there is a beautiful, beautiful verse? When you're struggling, when you're you're going down, man, begin to draw close to God. Begin to run to the throne of grace. So the Greek word translated uh, may here, that we may receive, may does not mean we might, 
doesn't mean that we may or we there's a possibility what it really means the actual word means you will receive so when you come boldly before the lord you will receive his grace if you're come on now so so this is not an invitation to come boldly and and, and see how we're doing lord i've come how am i doing and god's like no 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 that's not what it is it's an invitation to come boldly so that you can re- obtain mercy and find grace. So the definition of mercy is not getting what you deserve. How many have ever been given mercy? And the definition of grace, on the other hand, is getting what you don't deserve. How many have been given grace? If you've been saved by the blood of the Lamb, you've been given grace. And listen, you've been given grace and mercy. So so what do we deserve? Here, I'll give you a prime example. I, and I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't have a good example here. But if if we deserve death according to sin, for the wage of sin is death, that's what we deserve. You know what? We deserve um, for somebody just to come mow us down with a, with an Uzi or whatever the case. We That's what we deserve. And, and, and that's how many know that that's terrible? I don't want that. I don't want that, right? But grace is God saying, instead of everyone being mowed down by an Uzi, everyone gets a fudge, hot fudge Sunday. How many can get on board with that? I would rather have a hot fudge Sunday, right? And, and, and that's, that's exactly what God's grace is. I deserve, the wages of sin is death, but God says, I have eternal life for you. Whew, are you kidding me? This is great. So when you come to the throne boldly, not tentatively or not reluctantly, but boldly because the, you know why? Because the price has been paid. You can go up front and say, God, I need your grace and mercy. And Jesus says, paid. You find grace and mercy. So when do you find grace and mercy? Whenever you need it. Whenever you need it. That is beautiful. Will you do this? Will you bow your heads with me? Maybe you're here tonight and you say, hey, pastor, I needed to hear that. I needed to understand that, that God's mercy and grace, I needed to be reminded that God's grace and mercy is, is sufficient for me. I don't have to tarry it. I don't have to work my way. I, I've suffered from a little bit of unbelief, and I need some mercy and grace in my life. With, with nothing else going on in this room, I want you right now to just pray and say, God, I, I ask you, Lord, as I come boldly before your throne, God, as I, as I come before you, Lord, I, I ask, Lord, that if there's any unbelief in my life, Lord, that, and I repent of that, God, and I say, Lord, I, forgive me for that. God, forgive me for my past mistakes. God, forgive me for, for things. God, forgive me for not trusting you when I know I should trust you. Lord, I come before your throne, God, and I'm in a, in a situation where I need your grace and mercy in my life. So, Lord, I do what your word says. Lord, I come boldly, not because I'm good, but because you are good. Not because I'm great, because you are great. Lord, I know, Lord, that if I come boldly, Lord, the price has been paid. God, you have grace, and Lord, you have mercy on me. If you're here and you say, hey, pastor, I've been struggling and I needed to hear that God had grace and mercy for me tonight. Would you just do this? Would you just lift your hand? I mean, anybody in this in this house, I just want to pray with you in this moment. I just feel a real sensitiveness to the Holy Spirit right now. Thank you for raising those hands. Will you stand with me, everybody? I want I want to come together and just in prayer before we leave tonight. I want to pray for those who, who say, hey, I need to repent or I need to, I need to come boldly. I, I know I need grace and mercy of God. And maybe you've been saved a long time. Listen to me. You may have been saved 100 years. I don't know your story. I don't know everybody's story. There's never a time where you don't need to come to the throne of God's grace and mercy. I don't care if you've been saved your whole life. 
So let's do this. Let's pray right now. God, I, I thank you for your mercy and grace. God, I thank you for the hands that were raised. God, I, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would do a work that only it can do. God, I pray right now, Lord, that uh, uh, conviction, Lord, would begin to, to go, God, in the hearts of men and women, Lord, who, have, who may need to repent of unbelief and things in their heart, Lord, that, that maybe they've put a, a cap on what you, they think that you can do, but, Lord, you've given them a promise, and their unbelief has kept them from reaching that promise. God, I pray, Lord, that our faith would rise up. And Lord, that our faith as it would rise, Lord, that it would, it would connect uh, with your promises and with your word. Lord, and the things that you've said about us, Lord, will begin to come to pass because, Lord, we have the faith. We just have the mustard seed faith to just believe that you can do it. God, I ask right now, Lord, that you would just uh, give grace and mercy, God, in, in our hearts. God, even the most seasoned saints in the house, God, remind us of what grace and mercy is, God. We're not getting what we deserve, God. And, Lord, and, 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 you know, Lord, we deserve the wages of sin. But, Lord, you paid the price, so we receive that mercy today. And, God, thank you for your grace. Uh, Lord, uh, just, just a beautiful picture, Lord. Unmerited favor, something that I don't deserve. Lord, you've given your grace and mercy to us. And, God, we thank you for this. God, we put our trust in you. God, we believe only in you, God. And I pray, Lord, that as we leave this place, that our minds would be quickened, Lord, that our hearts would be full, Lord, that your spirit would lead and guide us. God, I pray for protection over our minds and our hearts. God, the devil would come in and try to, try to make uh, people believe that, that, that what you say is a lie. But, Lord, what you say is powerful and true. And, Lord, we trust you. God, I pray, Lord, this, the word of God tonight would, would just begin to just cut through our hearts, our intent our purposes in the natural and the supernatural, God. And, Lord, that you would draw us to you in the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. God, we are grateful that you uh, are our great apostle, God, that you are our great high priest. And thank you for interceding on our behalf. And thank you, Lord, for sending the message. And, Lord, that we might know and, and, and be forgiven of our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. You are dismissed.